Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabulletin. Tonight, we begin the first leg of an adventure covering the history of special education law in the United States. This is the next chapter in Disabulletin's continuing coverage of the recent Supreme Court case Perez v. Sturgis. To hear more about the case, you can find our previous episodes on WFHB.org. Just type Disabulletin in the search bar. Tonight, we're taking you back to the year 1893. The Chicago World's Fair is in full swing, and on September 20th of that year, Charles and Frank Duria successfully test the first-ever gasoline-powered automobile on the streets of Springfield, Massachusetts. Of course, despite these achievements in technology and national pride, special education is taking a step back an hour and a half away on Pemberton Street in Boston, Massachusetts. In its newly built granite shrine of justice, the Supreme Judicial Court led by Chief Justice Marcus Perrin Knowlton, hands down a decision in its latest case, Watson v. Cambridge. The case dates back to 1885, when the plaintiff, quote, was excluded from the schools because he was too weak-minded to derive profit from instruction, end quote. In his decision, Chief Justice Knowlton goes on to write that based on testimony given by the child's teachers and physicians, quote, he was so weak in mind as not to derive any marked benefit from instruction and further that he is troublesome to other children, making unusual noises, pinching others, etc. He is also found unable to take ordinary, decent care of himself, end quote. Although the court did not rule on the city of Cambridge's request to exclude the student, The final decision was turned over to a jury, which was asked, according to Knowlton's decision, quote, whether or not the plaintiff's presence in the school was a serious disturbance to the general order and discipline of the school, and whether the final decision of the school district was indeed final or could be overturned by a court, end quote. We do not hear about the jury's decision after this only that it appears the Massachusetts court gave the final say, stating that so long as the school districts act in the, quote, good faith, end quote, of schools, such a decision was therefore up to them. And if, quote, answered honestly, a jury composed of men of no knowledge in deciding education issues should not be permitted to say their answer is wrong, end quote. In other words, the court ruled that the school district had the final say in all matters. This affirmed the court's original rulings in a case that took place 23 years prior, Hodgkins v. Rockport, which first argued school districts were acting in the good faith of the schools by excluding children hindering the function of the school. We now move ahead in time. We're in Antigua, Wisconsin in the year 1919. Prohibition of alcohol has been ratified by the U.S. Congress, and the Paris Peace Conference has convened to discuss the negotiations of Germany post-World War I. Spurred on by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and the right of all nations to self-determination. But just as the U.S. Congress rejected this philosophy, so too did the Langdale County Municipal Court reject 13-year-old Merritt Beatty's right to attend public school alongside non-disabled students. As a graduating senior at Indiana University, I covered the historical timeline of special education law in my history senior thesis. One of those cases 
was Beatty versus Antigua Board of Education. Beatty, a 13-year-old student, had been removed from school by the Antigua, Wisconsin Board of Education. According to testimony, Merritt lacked the, quote, normal use and control of his voice, hands, feet, and body, end quote. Other challenges included, quote, uncontrollable facial contortions, making it difficult for him to be understood, end quote. The Antigua Board of Education argued that Beatty's differences created a, quote, depressing and nauseating effect upon the teachers and school children, that by reason of his physical condition, he takes up an undue portion of the teacher's time and attention, distracts the attention of other pupils, and interferes generally with the discipline and progress of the school, end quote. In spite of those obstacles, Merritt managed to keep up with his classmates from first to fifth grade, after which he was transferred to the city school for children who were deaf or who had, quote, defective speech, end quote. He was then placed back in a public school after five weeks in the fall of 1916. But why such a decision was made is not explained. After a state education representative visited Merritt's school and observed him in class, she recommended he be placed in the deaf program again, which he then declined. Merritt's parents appealed this decision to the Antigua Board of Education, which held a meeting to determine if Merritt could return to public school. Despite one member's motion to reinstate the boy, this was not seconded by the board. A local court then took on the case, where a jury ruled in favor of reinstating Merritt. Justice Walter C. Owen of the Wisconsin Supreme Court affirmed the school district's right to exclude Merritt Beatty, writing, quote, The right of a child of school age to attend the public schools of this state cannot be insisted upon when its presence therein is harmful to the best interests of the school, end quote. Owen then said the question at hand was who is responsible for deciding whether such a student can be removed, the courts or the school district? Based on Owen citing a state statute confirming the school board's right to transfer students from one department to another for their, quote, good order and advancement, end quote, and Merritt's, quote, presence being harmful to the school's welfare, end quote, the district had the right to exclude him, even if it was, quote, displeasing and painful to them, meaning the members of the school district, end quote. However, fellow Justice Franz Eschweiler disagreed with his colleague on the grounds that a jury had found, quote, no evidence that as a fact this boy's presence did have any harmful influence on the other children, end quote. Eschweiler also argued that the school board had no, quote, exclusive power and that such a decision by the board violated the state constitution's goal to secure to every child a substantial and fundamental right to attend the common school, end quote. Therefore, the school district's right to transfer Merritt Beatty was unconstitutional. Regardless of Eschweiler's disagreement, the court permitted Merritt's expulsion. Next week, the scales of justice begin to tip as we travel to the 1930s, where parents in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, began to grow frustrated over their children's being denied an equal opportunity in education all because of their disability, inspiring others across the country to mobilize. Until then, Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.